This is Talk RL Podcast. All reinforcement learning, all the time. Interviews with brilliant folks from across the world of RL. I'm your host, Robin Chohan. Dr. Jess Whittlestone is a senior research fellow at the Center for the Study of Existential Risk and the Leverhulme Center for the Future of Intelligence, both at the University of Cambridge. Thanks so much for joining us today, Dr. Whittlestone. Thanks for having me. So how do you describe uh, your focus area? So the basic focus of my research is, I guess I'm trying to think really clearly about the possible long-term impacts of advances in AI and how the various choices we make today about how we develop and govern this technology um, may shape that. So I come from a pretty interdisciplinary background, um, a mix of maths and philosophy and cognitive science and some policy experience. Um, So really a lot of what I'm trying to do is bring together different perspectives on thinking about progress in AI and its impacts um, and different kinds of methodologies um, to try and think um, more clearly about about what might happen in future and what that means that we should do today. So it doesn't what I do doesn't really fit neatly in an academic field or have a great term. It's sort of at the intersection of various things people might call AI policy, AI ethics, AI governance, but also with a greater emphasis on this kind of more descriptive side of trying to think about um, how is how is AI actually impacting society? How might it do so in future? Um, and then using that to inform, I guess, what I would call the more prescriptive work of thinking about what kinds of policies do we need to design um, and, and how should we be governing this technology to ensure that it benefits society. Um, I'm also um, co-leading a research group called AI Futures and Responsibility, which sits between these two centres that, that I work on, um, which focuses on this broad question of, of what we can do today to shape the long-term impacts of AI from a number of different angles. So we bring together, um, we've got, um, you know, a computer scientist, an anthropologist, someone with background in policy, um, someone with background in international law, um, and um, try and bring together all those different perspectives to think about um, AI governance today from this sort of longer term perspective. So I admit I've been dying to have you on the show uh, to hear about this first paper for what seems like a really long time, uh, like even ages before it was even published. And uh, I was going to ask our earlier guest, Dr. Kai Arulkumaran, to speak about it. He was a co-author, uh, but he said I, I should really come to you. So thanks to Kai for the a great suggestion. And here we are. And the paper is titled Societal Implications of Deep Reinforcement Learning. That's by uh, yourself, Jess Whittlestone, Kai Arulkumaran, and Matthew Crosby. So did I get that right? And, and uh, can can you start us with a brief overview? Yeah, absolutely. And thanks to Kai for the recommendation. Um, so, yeah, I wrote this paper with Kai and, and also my colleague, Math- Matthew Crosby. Um, they're both computer scientists um, working on, on things related to reinforcement learning. I'm coming from a bit more of this this broader sort of social science impacts policy perspective. Um, and the the background or real motivation for this paper was we were talking and thinking about the fact that as AI capabilities advance, they're going to have bigger impacts on society and we need to be able to sort of think ahead about how to steer this. But the thing I've really been thinking about is how that doesn't need to involve total speculation. Like the technology that's impacting society today has been in research development for well over a decade, if you think about um, the sort of yeah capabilities behind the computer vision, the NLP models, um, the deep fakes that are that are being talked about today. So we should expect that the technology that's going to have the biggest impact on society in the future will emerge from the kinds of areas that are currently receiving attention in research. And 
deep reinforcement learning seems like a good example of something that's receiving a lot of research attention and seeing a lot of progress, but not yet being at least widely applied in society. So it feels like it's kind of in this sweet spot where we understand the technology well enough to potentially think through its possible impacts without having to kind of engage in wild speculation. But there's still a lot of room to think carefully about how we want to use this in, in society and how to mitigate any harms that might arise. So what we try to do in this paper is, is discuss what it might look like for RL systems to be applied more widely in society. Um, and initially did this by thinking through a few domains where it seems plausible we'll see, see more application of deep RL in coming years. Um, so we thought particularly about um, online recommender systems, things like managing critical infrastructure and applications in robotics, um, and then spent some time sort of thinking through the issues that might arise in these domains, as well as trying to consider, well, how might the kinds of ethics and policy challenges that are currently being discussed be sort of pushed or strained or changed by RL systems? Um, so I'll kind of I'll, I can talk through a few of the the ethics and, and society issues that we we discuss in the paper, and then if you want to go into more detail on any of them, then we can do. Um, one sort of obvious thing that we first started thinking about is you know a lot of what. Um, RL allows compared to supervised learning systems um, is that it promises these much more autonomous um, systems sort of operating in the real world with much less human intervention, which is exciting, but also, you know, raises issues for these notions of the importance of, of human oversight over systems in order to ensure that they're, they're safe and, and reliable. Um, currently, the kind of main way that that notion of um, oversight is operationalized in, in policy and in ethics discussions is this idea of having a human in the loop, um, which is, is, is less likely to be feasible with a lot of RL systems, um, especially if you've got kind of, for example, like deep reinforcement learning systems being used in some form of research management, like monitoring and adjusting the energy usage in a building, which seems quite plausible as an application. If you've got a system that's making hundreds of small decisions in a, in a short time period, it's not really clear what human oversight of that looks like. Um, and this is maybe particularly likely to, to be challenging and a concern if we've got um, RL systems that are doing continual learning or even multi-agent systems, it's then much less clear like what the model of oversight looks like um, for those systems. And I guess this is related to a second, a second concern we brought up, which is just that um, deep RL systems are going to raise new and bigger challenges for ensuring safety and reliability of, of AI systems, um, partly because they learn via trial and error. If we're going to start deploying these systems in the real world, we really need to make sure that um, we, we sort of have really solid approaches to safe exploration. Um, again, continual learning is likely to pose a challenge. We can't just do this thing that we can do with supervised learning systems, which is kind of um, assure the, their safety or reliability before deployment against some standard. Um, obviously, if you've got um, a system that's going to continue learning from real world data, you're going to need some form of, of continual monitoring to be assured that it's, it's safe. Um, and in addition, if DeepRL is going to enable us just to deploy more autonomous systems in more high stakes domains. Um, there's a bunch of talk about sort of DeepRL applied to smart cities, to sort of critical infrastructure and things like energy, transportation and agriculture. This simply kind of raises the stakes of safety challenges. If something goes wrong, it's a much bigger deal um, than, than perhaps a lot of the systems um, being deployed today. Um, and then we, we kind of go on to discuss a bunch of other issues, one um, around sort of the fact that the flexibility of reward functions, which is kind of what makes reinforcement learning systems so powerful, that also introduces a lot of greater potential for unintended consequences. Um, 
So Stuart Russell in um, his relatively recent book talks about this concern he has about social media content selection algorithms, which are, you know, designed to maximize the likelihood a user clicks on an item may have this side effect of making users preferences more predictable, which has shifted them towards more extreme contact, which perhaps is contributing to online polarization. This is the kind of thing we might be concerned about where, you know, a company is optimizing for a specific objective. Um, actually, you know, those systems that are optimizing for the, that objective become quite powerful in society, have in, in this example, you know, play quite a large role in influencing what content people read and how they choose it and has this broader unintended consequence, um, which could end up being harmful. Um, so I think as we start um, deploying these um, these more autonomous, more optimizing systems with these kind of more flexible reward functions than you might have with supervised learning, we need to be, be thinking a lot more about these things. Um, and then maybe we'll briefly, I'll just skim over the few other things we discussed. And again, if you want to ask questions, we can. So we talk also about the potential for DeepRL to increase the incentives that exist for ongoing data collection across society. We talk about security concerns. So, so one thing there is that compared with other ML approaches, it can be harder to distinguish adversarial attacks from benign actions in DeepRL because the, because of the exploration, the training data distribution is constantly changing. Um, and then we also talk about this kind of big topic of, of automation and just kind of broadly discuss the fact that advances in DeepRL could really shift the susceptibility of different jobs to automation. And this hasn't really been thoroughly considered at all in any of the um, analyses of what kinds of jobs might get automated. And then what we do later in the paper is we kind of we take so we we sort of discuss all these kinds of issues that might need to be considered. And then we come back to the question of like, well, what are the things that are currently limiting um, us from applying DeepRL systems more in society, what are the research barriers, and talk through those and kind of um, discuss how maybe those should be things that we're keeping better track of as kind of warning signs that we might might start to see more application um, of reinforcement learning in society, which maybe means that policymakers and others need to be thinking more seriously and harder about the kinds of concerns that we raise in the paper. Cool. Okay. So, so this show usually we're usually dealing with uh, more technical papers, and but recently we had uh, Thomas Gilbert on, uh, who has kind of a related mm. focus in terms of um, political economy and RL. So, uh, I guess the, the audience here is, is a little bit different. Uh, the intended audience for this paper maybe a little bit different than we we uh, usually focus on. What what would you say is the main target audience you had in mind uh, for this paper? Yeah. So, I guess I would say we have two two audiences in mind. Perhaps like just slightly sort of the, the primary audience I suppose is more um the sort of the sort of researchers who do the kind of work that that I do on the more ethics and governance side. Part of what I wanted to do with this paper was actually bring a greater understanding of some of the kind of more technical elements of progress in, in AI and a more nuanced understanding of the different types of AI systems and the different capabilities that they have to that discussion. So rather than just talking about the impact of AI broadly, which can feel like very crude and broad brush, actually start to say, well, you know, a lot of the systems that we're concerned about today are supervised learning, but we're seeing progress in this, this different form of machine learning, which maybe raises some different challenges and opportunities. And I'm really to that audience of people who are mostly thinking about how to govern these systems and thinking about what issues they raise, um, contribute a bit more of a sort of nuanced discussion and, and, and bring to mind for those people, like maybe this is something you should be paying attention to, um, progress in this area. Um, so that was kind of the primary audience, but definitely there was also, um, and I, and I hope that the, the paper is still engaging to, to the more technical audience, um, because part of what we wanted to do was also get people who 
do research in, in, in reinforcement learning, thinking about, um, especially if, if you're doing stuff that's sort of closer to bringing, bringing capabilities to application, get people thinking about um, what the possible impacts and, and issues raised um, by the kind of research and the kind of systems they're building are. And ultimately, I mean, something we really stress at the end of the paper is that we think to address many of the challenges that we discuss is going to need um, collaboration between people working on the more technical side of, of building um, RL systems and people who are thinking about the governance challenges. If we want to be able to, you know, think really carefully about what kinds of oversight these systems need, you need to bring together people who, you know, really understand the systems and the challenges that they're going to pose for oversight with people who really understand, you know, the requirements and the situations in which oversight might be needed and, and for what purposes. Um, and I guess that's sort of what we tried to start. Exactly. You know, this paper was a collaboration between um, me, someone who works on the more ethics and governance side and a couple of people working more on the development side. Um, this, I guess I would say, is something I try and bring to my work in a direction I'm kind of trying to nudge this ethics and governance field in more broadly. I think it's it's really important that our thinking about um, societal impacts is underpinned or at least um, sort of, you know, can draw on uh, a fairly solid understanding of, of this nuance and the details of like what current systems can actually do and, and where they might be going. Otherwise, I think it's going to sort of fall short of being actually relevant or, or practical. So that's something um, that I think a lot about. And so, yeah, part of the aim of this paper was to also engage people working on the more technical side, um, maybe with with trying to get involved in thinking about some of these issues. Okay, so it sounds like we really need a multidisciplinary perspective to to make progress in this area. So once we have that, what like what does the path look like for getting from, from where we are today, where there hasn't been a whole lot of thinking uh, on this area, especially in RL, which is why I'm excited to chat with you here, to, to a society that's that's really more prepared for this? Uh, what, what does that path look like? Yeah, that's a big question, <laughs> an important question. Yeah, I think the first step is bringing together some of these people from different groups and backgrounds and expertise a bit more productively in sort of talking about and, and figuring out, you know, what are the kinds of advances and the, the kinds of systems and the kinds of impacts they're going to have um, on society. And, and I think, you know, one of the challenges for doing that, it's all very well to say we need more interdisciplinary work. I think a lot of, a lot of people are shouting that in, in AI and in other domains, but it's challenging because sort of people speak different languages and have different incentives, right? Like I, even when it comes to like, I try and collaborate with people working in ML and there's a sometimes a bit of a challenge of like you know the journals they want to publish in for their career are not necessarily the same journals that all the the conferences that that I want to publish in and and so there's some challenges there that I think yeah need to be overcome to to some extent I think you know we're starting to see big conferences like Europe's and ICML and others you know have workshops um that attempt to bring these different perspectives together and allow people to to publish papers that that sit at this intersection but I think I think there's still some work to be done there. Um, I think there's then there's a sort of also bridging that gap between academic understanding and and the policy understanding and the and the governance, and that's another gap that I'm really trying to bridge with the work I'm doing and some of the people I'm I'm bringing together. Is you know we need to do this big picture, open ended exploration of 
um, you know, what are the things, what are the kinds of impacts we might be concerned about in future? Like what kinds of specific advances and capabilities do we need to be thinking about? But then you also need to be able to tie that back to like, okay, practically what can be done today when it comes to decisions that the government and industry are making about about these technologies and getting into some of that nitty gritty. Um, one one specific thing I'm working on at the moment that I think is quite quite promising in this regard um, is trying to um, think about how governments can build better capacity to be measuring and assessing features of systems and monitoring progress. Um, so I think a big problem for the governance of this technology at the moment is the kind of classic problem with technology policy, which is um, basically technology is fast, government slow, um, regulation isn't, um, and other forms of governance generally can't keep up with the pace of progress. And I think we're really seeing this with AI, like government is getting caught off guard by advances um, and only really able to respond when something's already blown up in the media or already created economic activity. Um, and that, I think, is going to be a real problem as the systems get more advanced, as they get more widely deployed across society. Um, potentially, you know, we might see bigger bigger harms and bigger mistakes, and we can't just have government responding to to mistakes as they as they happen. Um, so what I'm quite excited about is this idea that going back to something I said earlier, you know, in order to be a bit ahead of the curve and, and prepare, you don't have to speculate about the future. You just need to know what's what's going on today better um, in especially in the sort of and, and, you know, what's being applied in society, what capabilities are looking close to deployment. And so actually, I'm, I'm working on this with with Jack Clark, who um, used to be the policy director at OpenAI um, and has been involved in a lot of AI measurement and assessment initiatives um, and has just launched a new project, um, a new company called Anthropic AI. We're working on kind of developing this proposal around how can governments build greater capacity to essentially um, be kind of getting that reliable information about when potentially impactful capabilities are going to be deployed, um, getting better information about um, where systems might not be as robust and safe as, as they should be um, in order to sort of be better prepared to, you know, not, it's not that they should necessarily be taking action before anything's happened, but like reacting to more sensitive information, not necessarily reacting to like this huge thing's got blown up in the media, but reacting to um, sort of the, the finer details of, of what's going on in the world. So that's something I'm excited about. But um, that's not definitely not the whole solution to being more prepared, but it feels like a quite an important step to me. Do you think that there could or should be uh, regulation on, on RL? And, uh, and maybe related, any thoughts on the recently proposed uh, EU AI regulations? Yeah, um, first thoughts on this. It's a, it's a big topic. Um, I, I'll start with the EU regulation and then say what I think specifically about RL. I do think um, I'm generally broadly pretty positive about the EU regulation. I think that we... Actually, over the last few years, I've come to be sort of like more convinced that we do need some kind of, of AI regulation. Um, I guess I think of regulation as being, you know, regulation is sort of your your bluntest tool. Um, you know, you can either ban things or you can put restrictions on their use or make them have to um, conform to certain standards. And so I think of regulation as being the thing we use when we like reasonably well understand understand what the harms are or, or what the risks are of something. 
Um, so, you know, I like the approach that the EU has taken in general in that they say, okay, there are some, um, there are some AI systems, some applications of AI that seem like they cause or are likely to cause unacceptable levels of harm. And so those we're just going to ban. And that includes, um, I can't remember the exact um, details, but it includes certain forms of sort of discrimination and, and manipulation from AI systems. Um, and then they say, okay, there are other kinds of AI systems that are high risk. And those we're going to subject to, we're basically going to say, like, they have to go through conformity assessments. So they have to go through certain um, sort of processes of assessment and they need to um, have all this documentation and they need all this disclosure um, before they can they can be put in the market. Um, and then there's sort of then there's below that there's there's, I think, another couple of of levels of risk. And I think broadly that makes a lot of sense to me as an approach, I think breaking systems down according to sort of like their level of of risk or um or the kinds of impacts they might have is much more sensible than trying to regulate ai as a whole technology or trying to regulate specific applications of ai um just by sort of sector or something but i think the all that said the devil's really in the details and i think there are still a lot of challenges in how we choose and define which systems fall in which categories so there's a lot of ambiguity in the definitions of um what in in the definitions of what systems fall under the the prohibited um part i think there's some with the the notion of sort of manipulative systems there's something about um you know if it would cause someone to behave in a way that's detrimental to them that they wouldn't have otherwise and you sort of think hmm assessing that's going to be pretty difficult um and even in the high risk category, um, there's sort of a set of domains that they've identified as 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 having specific applications under them that are high risk. But it's pretty difficult to to adapt that. Um, I think it may I think we I, so one of the things that I do think is really important for for this regulation is that it's able to adapt as capabilities advance. I think one of the big concerns with something is um, sort of. I suppose kind of regimented and, and hardlined as, as regulation is that it's hard to change. And so it can become ossified, which either means it's kind of irrelevant because it doesn't really deal with the challenges of the systems that we have in future or that um, it might even kind of, yeah, it does. It, it kind of focuses attention on the things that aren't really what matters. We focus attention on sort of making sure there's all this documentation for these, these specific types of systems, but actually something falls through the loopholes. So I think one thing that's going to be interesting and challenging to think about and actually I'm working on with some of my group is is thinking about this like, okay, what are the features that this regulation needs to have in order to be able to adapt over time? And how does that apply to the EU regulation? It does have various things in place that allow it to, you know, things to be added, things to be changed. But there are some limits on that. I think a really interesting test case here in terms of sort of probing the limits of its ability to adapt is to think about something like, um, you know, does this deal with reinforcement learning systems? Um, I think at the moment it doesn't really. It doesn't really draw those distinctions. Um, certainly there are specific examples of reinforcement learning systems that might end up being sort of shooed in under some of the categories that are currently um, seen as high risk. I think, you know, in in my view, there certainly will and could easily be um, examples of reinforcement learning systems that get deployed in the world that should certainly be subject to this kind of conformity assessment, you know, a high standard of testing for safety and reliability and robustness. If you're, you know, if you're deploying 
quite autonomous systems in high stakes domains, like some of the sort of critical infrastructure domains I talked about earlier, especially if they're doing some form of continual learning, I think it's very sensible that they should need to be subject to um, at least some form of conformity assessment. There's a whole other question of like who determines and how does it get set up what those conformity assessments look like. Um, but I think that's very sensible. I don't think we should be thinking about regulating RL as a category or as a whole. Um, I think that doesn't make sense. It's an underlying capability. You know, it's a mathematical like framework. Um, but I certainly think there are there are types of systems that are based on RL that have certain features and certain domains that we'll probably want to think about regulating. Um, and and I guess, yeah, thinking that through what are the what are the conditions in which RL systems should be regulated is, um, I think, a challenge that we're going to need to deal with. So do you think that uh, RL specifically is likely to contribute to a more concentration of power and increase inequality? Do you think that's a major risk here? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. Um, and I haven't really thought about this with RL specifically. So I'm going to be thinking a little bit on the fly here. Um, I do worry in general about um, about the way we're going with AI contributing to increasing quality and, and concentration of power. So a, a big project I've been um, working on recently with my research assistant, Sam Clark, who's amazing, is um, trying to sort of like more comprehensively map out different um, pathways by which AI might might pose sort of large, large risks to society. Um, so, yeah, slight background on this is that I guess we came to this because it feels like the discussion about AI kind of posing risks to society or having very extreme impacts still feels fairly immature. I think, um, you know, there's Nick Bostrom's super intelligence, which is sort of like the main the main scenario that a lot of people would associate when they, when they hear sort of like AI risk, AI extreme risk is this concern about, um, you know, developing AI systems that are as intelligent or, or more intelligent than humans and then that going badly wrong. Um, I think that's like a scenario we should be concerned about. Um, I'm not I'm not dismissing that, but it's also it's one very specific scenario um, and also the specific scenario. He sketches sort of relies on a lot of assumptions about what AI progress is going to look like, that it's likely to be this sort of fast centralized thing that we're going to have this sort of one system. So part of what we've been trying to do is is broaden and, and, and nuance that conversation and discussion and um, pulling together lots of different literature and, and perspectives. And, and we're working towards something like a research agenda to try and sort of map out, OK, what are some different things that we we might be concerned about, perhaps even in scenarios where we don't reach anything like super intelligence. But, you know, AI capabilities sort of advance along the trajectory that they're currently on. Um, and get used more widely in society. And all of that's just background to say that one of the one of the scenarios I think that, that's come out of that, that um, there is a lot of thinking on, but it's not quite unified enough, is this idea of, um, you know, AI really leading to power concentration and increased inequality. One of the big questions I think I have in my mind about that at the moment is, you know, how bad does, does that get? Could this get locked in for really long periods of time? But I think when you have you've got a bunch of trends sort of pushing in that direction. You've got the fact that, um, you know, AI is, is perhaps leading to more winner takes all like monopolistic dynamics um, in tech. You have this kind of feedback loop where the companies that have 
the most data and the most computing power can design better products and services, which allow them to like amass more data and computing power. Um, and, and, and that kind of feeds back on itself. You have the fact that, um, you know, various ML techniques are now being used by tech companies, social media companies to improve their advertising, to improve their brands, to influence what people, um, think in such a way that that makes them more powerful. At the same time, you know, you also have like on a sort of global scale, you have the fact that um, these capabilities are being used much more in the sort of developed than the developing world um, to boost their economies. And then you have the fact that potentially you've got kind of um, potential sort of job losses due to automation um, leading to greater inequality in society, um, which um you know, could kind of intersect with those broader trends. So none of this answers your question about RL. I think um, insofar that RL is just going to enable like more powerful optimizing systems that can optimize more effectively for sort of any given objective, um, any given sort of easily, I suppose, any given objective that you can specify. Um, I do think it's it's likely to worsen this trend um, without without other thoughts, right? Because um it's likely to improve the ability of social media companies to like really optimize for their for their revenue um and um that's going to sort of drive um increasing concentration of power power there um and and potentially you know as i said sort of combined with impacts on on jobs um it could do that but you know i guess the caveat here is this is something we're working on that i feel like there's still kind of a lot of gaps in in that story um about what exactly happens and what exactly something like rl is going to contribute but right now i'm that's the thing i'm concerned about for sure mm-hmm. i mean i guess from my point of view if you wanted to replace a worker uh with an ai system it pretty much has to be framed as an rl problem so that you can optimize yeah. uh, for the worker's actions towards the goal of profit for the business. Yeah. Um, and so it seems like the most natural uh, framing for that. And so I, I guess I, I worry about this like economic singularity. I'm not so worried about a uh, intelligence singularity, but the economic singularity mm. seems like a much more likely, very high probability scenario uh, which is just a little less sexy to talk about than uh, AGI. Mm. But uh, it seems like it could be here a lot sooner. And like you say, it, 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 it may have some kind of lock-in properties that are, that are hard to, to escape from. So I really hope that policy people are thinking uh, clearly about this, that type of risk as well. And it's not just one in a, in a giant list of, of uh, potential risks. Because um, yeah. it, seems, it seems to me it's going to be a challenge for us to avoid that. I guess futures in which AI is, is highly decentralized and knowledge of, of its use is very decentralized and maybe, maybe you know, labor itself is able to use these tools to not be replaced, but just be improve, Im- improve its productivity. Maybe, maybe there's a way through there. Uh, but I really look forward to, yeah. to guidance from, from people like you on how to, on how to avoid this economic singularity that, that does concern me. Yeah, I'll try. Can I just, so when you say economic singularity, do you mean, yeah, what do you mean by that? Do you mean like a scenario where we have a sort of 
transition point where there's kind of like suddenly like a discontinuity in economic growth and it, it starts really rapidly increasing at a different rate of change? Or do you mean something different? Yeah, I just threw out that phrase. I, I don't know if it's if it's a common <laughs> phrase at all. Maybe we've made a new phrase. Maybe. No, I like it. So I looked it up after the show. This phrase shows up in a couple places. Callum Chase in his 2015 book, Surviving AI, The Promise and Peril of Artificial Intelligence, he defines economic singularity as the moment when AI renders most of us unemployed and indeed unemployable because our jobs have been automated. And then William D. Nordhaus in his 2015 National Bureau of Economic Research working paper titled, Are We Approaching an Economic Singularity? Information Technology and the Future of Economic Growth, defines it as some boundary or singularity after which economic growth will accelerate sharply as an ever-accelerating pace of improvements cascades through the economy. And now let's return to the episode with Jess Whittlestone. Yeah, I was thinking um, in terms of concentration of power and capital not needing labor, really anymore. Yeah, this is something I've I've thought about a bit and I've I've heard some other people talking about there's a few different elements to this. Yeah, one is this just sort of notion of AI leading to more what we might call like kind of transformative and, and discontinuous um change. There's this possibility of just um increasing the rate of economic growth, um increasing the rate of change. Um of economic growth in a way that kind of produces a discontinuity. And I think, I mean, that's one way of describing what would happen, right? Which is very much on the like economic metric side. But I think probably what that that looks like is being able to automate like a very large proportion of like economically valuable work. And whether or not that also looks like concentration of power or whether there's some way of doing that. There's some like scenario in which that occurs and which is more decentralized mm -hmm. and and therefore I don't know, but that certainly seems like a scenario in which like the world as we know it is like very different and I am not confident it would be good. <laughs> so yeah, that's, I, I, yeah, definitely more thought needs to go into, into what that would look like. So do you have uh, future work in mind uh, in the, in the direction of this paper? Yeah. So not, I have various bits of future work in mind that sort of are in the direction of this paper, but not an actual extension. I mean, one thing when we finished the paper I did have in mind was maybe trying to do some kind of similar analyses and explorations for um, other areas of, of machine learning that are, that are, that are seeing kind of substantial progress today. Deep RL was the one that, that really stood out. Um, but maybe, you know, doing this for, um, you know, what if we see substantial progress in certain kinds of transfer learning or in certain kinds of unsupervised learning or, you know, fill in. I haven't sort of done the, it would be nice to do the kind of, um, the high level thinking about, okay, what are really other areas that might have, um, what are other areas of progress in ML that, that actually we should be thinking about because they might really impact society? I, I ended up sort of taking a step back from trying to answer that question and more recently sort of stepping back further and looking at this bigger picture question of what are the, what are the sort of scenarios we should be most concerned about um, as we were starting to get into there um, from this perspective of sort of longer term impact of AI and looking beyond the AGI superintelligence scenario. And part of the reason I did that was I felt like I wanted to have a clearer picture in mind of like, yeah, the sort of longer term pathways that and the longer term forms of societal impact that we might be most concerned about in order to sort of then trace back to what are the developments that are likely to matter most. Um, so I sort of see I've kind of got this project ongoing where there's this kind of iterative process between um, trying to pull together different perspectives and, and research 
to to map out some of these these longer term pathways so you know what might a power concentration scenario look like what might it look like um or or could you know developments in in ai and ml end up sort of um undermining um humanity's sort of competence and ability to deal with deal with challenges in certain ways obviously it could also potentially go in the the more positive direction but um i tend to focus more on the risks which um we can talk about at some point um anyway sort of tracing out these longer term trajectories kind of to like orient myself and get this clear picture of sort of what what really matters here but then i think there's there's some interesting work to be done in sort of tracing back from that but also looking up from the future and saying like well if these are the scenarios we're concerned about what are the kinds of um developments that perhaps matter most and you know i think the reason we chose that we chose deep rl was because this really does feel like as you said it's sort of like it's hard to imagine more autonomous generally capable systems in society that aren't based on on deep rl in in some sense because um it's just such a sort of basic um framework for for having systems that are more like agents right that that, that interact with the world um i think advances in natural language processing language modeling um they're obviously getting a lot of attention in the moment starting to see deployment in society um you know have potential to really impact both um the way that information is produced and disseminated and assessed um in society and 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 work you know i think when gpt3 the the sort of um the latest language model from OpenAI came out um, one of the things that sort of struck me or surprised or, or scared me most was the um, the the uses we were very quickly seeing to write code. The fact that it's like very good at taking um, like natural language mm-hmm. descriptions and turning it into code um, and being like, oh, wow, like I can see this automating like all kinds of software engineering. Um, so I think that's an avenue that is is going to have a lot of impact and and needs more more thinking about um what what that's going to do um so yeah this this kind of approach i'm taking is like quite big ambitious project of like you know figuring out what we should be concerned about in the future um kind of involves taking this like very big picture look at the sort of longer term pathways and and trying to map out different possibilities um but then also looking at sort of like where are we today and which what are the impacts that these these trends are going to have so i think um looking more at some of that is there's a sort of this much bigger broader project that's the, that's the natural extension of this at the moment and i think they'll end up focusing in again at some point but yeah i sort of dipped my head down into into the rl space um and now i've kind of come back up and are doing this much wider broader thing and then maybe we'll kind of end up digging back into something more specific but i'm not quite sure what that looks like yet awesome okay so let's move to your uh next paper uh artificial canaries Early Warning Signs for Anticipatory and Democratic Governance in, of AI. That was Carla Zoe Kramer and yourself. So what's the gist of this paper? Yeah, so this this paper um, emerged from, so Zoe, Zoe Kramer, um, she was doing um, a sort of um, a year's research project at um, the Center for the Study of Existential Risk where I work. And she did this really great project where she was interviewing um, various researchers across ML, cognitive science, philosophy, to try and better understand like what people thought saw the current limitations of deep learning being, particularly with respect to achieving something like 
um, human level intelligence. She has a more precise definition, but she was asking people, you know, what are the things that you think AI systems today can't do? Um, that is sort of like the, the things that they would need to do. Um, what are the most important kind of, um, milestones that the current deep learning systems need to achieve if they're going to, um, get to anything like human intelligence? And also sort of what are the things that you think, if any, you know, deep learning systems maybe fundamentally can't can't do that that human intelligence can do and from this project she came up with a really interesting and sort of in-depth list of kind of collated uh, a lot of these these milestones and these capabilities you know so from with a really wide range so from like you know causal learning to certain forms of interpretability to um concept formation and and yeah lots of different things um and and she was really interested in trying to think about, you know, how do we distill what we have from these experts here to kind of get a better understanding, especially if we think about the relationship between the different milestones that people have come up with. Um, could some of these milestones serve as kind of early warning signs of, of progress towards something like um, human level intelligence? So if if these are the things that the experts are saying, like, you know, we're never going to get human level intelligence without. Well, you know, we should if we see progress, like substantial progress on these things, then we should we should really kind of, um, <laughs> I don't know, start paying attention. Um, and she and I were talking about this and um, started kind of thinking about is there a is there a broader sort of methodology or approach here that could be really useful for identifying um, early warning signs of progress towards sort of like any big event or milestone in AI, whether that's um, human level in machine intelligence or or something else and you know i particularly was was a bit more interested in thinking about you know what a um how do we identify early warning signs of progress that might lead to like really large societal impact so for example like if what you're concerned about is you know a scenario in which ai is able to automate 60 percent of jobs can we can we think about like what's the process we would go through if we wanted to be able to, able to identify sort of particular um areas of progress that if we if we saw pro if we saw progress in them um we should kind of recognize that as 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 progress towards that sort of big scenario um so in this paper we basically report and discuss the results from her interviews and um and the way that we used um causal mapping techniques to try and understand the relationship between them and therefore so that kind of identify the ones um the kinds of milestones which we call canaries which are the, the sort of really fundamental ones because um you know we identified that there are some milestones where it's like oh if you make progress on this it seems like you're going to make progress on a whole load of other things that people say are important um so we discussed the specific results of, of her study but then also kind of propose and, and discuss this this broader methodology that could be used for identifying um these kinds of particularly important warning signs of a broader range of sort of events and kinds of progress in ai so do you feel like these the these milestones are measured in a binary, like attained or not attained sense, or is it more a gradual process that that we're monitoring? Like, if we had a milestone for for vision yeah. ML, maybe that's too broad, or would you consider that attained by now in in twenty twenty one, or or back when CNNs were were first introduced and solved ImageNet, or or maybe not yet? Yeah, I think. I mean, this is one of the this is one of the challenges I think of implementing this in practice because I think they have to be gradual, at least the way that we've define them i mean i think probably something like vision ml is too is too broad to be a milestone in the sense that we intend it i think it would need to be something like ideally you know you define it as something much more specific like 
the ability of ML systems to generate like convincing faces that humans cannot distinguish um, from real faces or something something like that, right? Um, and obviously, that even there, there's like a bit of ambiguity. Um, like, you know, what level do humans need to be convinced at? Um, but at least something like that is more specific. As we have it in the paper with the with the specific milestones that that Zoe generated from her interviews, um, they are broader than that. Although I think not quite as um, maybe not quite as specific as Vision ML. Although some of them them probably are. I don't have it up in front of me, but um, you know, there are some that are pretty um, pretty broad, like causal reasoning. Um, and I think probably actually for probably an important next step for this and. Um, maybe a next thing that would be valuable to do moving on from this project is to think about, you know, how do you actually operationalize these more specifically and think about what are the, what are the indicators that you've met the indicators, right? Like our indicators at the moment are maybe, maybe a little too broad. Um, at the same time, I think you can also just have these indicators where progress is more, um, is more continuous and, um, you know, if nothing else you've identified. Um, so I should explain, I think I didn't really explain very well at the beginning of the paper, but one of part of the methodology we, we outline is that you, you know, you use expert elicitation to generate sort of a list of these are the these are the um, milestones that are likely to be really important. And then we use this technique called um, a form of causal mapping um, to. And the idea is that you you bring in um, kind of a wide range of experts to do this. But the idea is to, to identify relationships to the between the milestones. So to say like, oh, well, some form of like. Um, concept formation is important for underpinning causal mapping. I don't actually quite know if that's true, but something, some, something in that space. Um, and then you have this map where you've got all the sort of relationships and, and the, the canaries, as we call them, they're like particularly important warning signs are the, are the nodes that, um, have more outgoing arrows than, than others. So the ones that, that underpin, um, a lot of others. So going back to the point about whether they're, they're binary or continuous, I think it's, it's still useful to be able to say like, oh, well, it looks like concept formation um, in some some sense is is a really important node. Now, there might not be any binary factor of whether it's been passed or not, but at least then you've identified like, OK, if what we care about is identifying um, warning signs of, of progress towards human level intelligence, then um, we need to be paying a lot more um, attention to research in in concept formation or whatever. Um, but yeah, it's a good, it's a good question. And I think it's, it's a detail of our methodology that, that certainly could do with a little bit of refining. Cool. Yeah. Definitely not a critique, just, just a comment that this, this, this kind of stuff yeah. can be a bit yeah. fuzzy and, and it gets interesting to, to think about the, the gradations. So, so I was curious to what extent you feel that experts can, can really map out future milestones. Um, so I was thinking yeah. back to maybe how people before DQN and the Atari work, might have conceived of these milestones of how RL or AI might play out or say before CNNs and ImageNet and, and uh, which is kind of modern deep learning, like could the experts back then have done a good job of listing um, uh, meaningful milestones in the near term, which got us to this point in, in terms of RL or, or maybe do we understand the problems just so much better now and in terms of what intelligent systems need to do? And so maybe we are at a point where 
where we where ac- even experts uh, do have the ability to to map out meaningfully. What, what do you think about that? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think um, I'm generally skeptical of any claim that's sort of like, oh, we couldn't do this thing in the future, but things in the past, but things are different now, and so we will be able to do it now. Um, I mean, obviously, it's it's hard to know to look back. Woods would people um in the past have been able to to kind of predict um impactful milestones my general i mean my general response to these these kinds of questions you know can we can we meaningfully predict the future should we have any confidence in this is like i don't know but i think it's worth trying um and it's better to try and think explicitly about what kinds of milestones might be important than it is to sort of no, I guess there's this general, more general point and a more general point about a lot of what I'm doing, which, you know, I've said is about trying to think about the future. And I'm trying to think about the future, like long term societal impacts of of this very broad technology, which um, I think to many people sounds just like a totally intractable goal and you can never get any precision on it and you're never going to get it right. And and I guess what I what I say to that or that the. The way I see it is that I'm not trying to I'm actually not trying to predict um, what I because I don't think I don't think we can predict, you know, this is going to be the impact on society of this very broad technology in 10, 20, 50 years time. I do think it is worth thinking systematically and rigorously about what could happen in the future, thinking through a range of possibilities, um, because we're kind of making we're making assumptions about the future all the time when we make decisions right and and coming back to the milestones example where um you know researchers and others in the community are kind of making assumptions all the time about what will or won't be possible in future when they decide what to focus their attention on um when we decide what to be concerned about um and and so we're making all these assumptions implicitly. And so I think it's much better that we make them explicit, you know, by mapping out these different pathways. We don't think that we've like predicted what's going to happen, but we're at least unearthing some of the interesting questions that need to be asked and some of the things that we might need to to prepare for. And I think with the with the milestones example, part of the value of doing it is also that. So I think part of Zoe's motivation with the with the deep learning limitations work was there seems to be a lot of disagreement among um, different sort of parts of the research community interested in the AI progress about whether and when anything like human um, level intelligence is going to be possible. And so, so part of the purpose there was, well, if I can dig into in a bit more detail what people think the limitations are, then maybe that will help to, to kind of give a better understanding of why people disagree and what kinds of evidence should make us update in one direction or the other. You know, if loads of people think that um, some specific form of causal learning is like the thing that is going to make the difference, well, then, you know, if we see that progress, then, then we should change our minds. Um, so I guess all this is to say I'm not entirely confident that we can predict with any level of uncertainty like what the important um, advances are going to be in in future but I do think trying to do so at least can like unearth helpful questions sometimes at least kind of force us to think more explicitly about what things would would change our mind um, and and sometimes you know the other the other thing is that you know if you if you map out and think about like what are the different things that that could happen what are the different advances that perhaps we can be concerned about i do think it helps you to make better decisions um 
better decisions in the present. So like it's worth us spending some energy um, paying attention to progress in different areas of AI that we think might have big impacts on society. At least I, I think that's true. Going back to the, the point about getting getting governments to monitor AI progress. Like let's not choose those areas at random. Let's at least try and do some systematic work thinking about um, which avenues of progress might underpin loads more progress that might lead to some big societal impact. We might not be right, but it's better than not trying to do it at all. Similarly, you know, we're going to govern this technology in some way. We're going to have regulations. Governments are going to do things. Let's do it informed by a wide range of possible things that might happen in in future and things we might be concerned about um, and sort of try and identify like robustly good policies that, um, you know, won't fall apart unless our very specific assumptions hold true. Um, so that's, I guess, quite a big picture answer to, to your question where the literal answer is like, I'm not sure. I don't know. I don't know if they would have been able to predict it. Um, but but maybe some of it would have gotten something useful. Yeah, I'm 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 playing devil's advocate a little bit. It doesn't mean I don't uh, have a ton of respect for your work, and I think it's really important. Yeah, <laughs> no, they're good questions. So, do you think that we would generally know when we've achieved a milestone, like at the time, or do you think that some of these are only clear in retrospect? Yeah, that's also a good question. I think it depends on how precisely you specify the milestone, which kind of goes back to some of your earlier questions. I think we can we can specify them precisely. And this kind of points towards specifying them more precisely. We can specify them precisely enough that we could we could know um, that we'd achieved it, right? If you specify it in terms of a very specific benchmark being achieved, um, then obviously we can know. The sort of, the vaguer it is and the more that it relies on, I don't know, sort of like human intuitions about what's impressive or something, um, then maybe it's it's harder to know until later do you have did you have any examples in mind of the kinds of things that like i don't know progress we've seen in the past at the time we wouldn't have recognized as like a big deal but that um but that we did later on uh i don't have a great example of that to be <laughs> honest but i think no, that's fine i just wanted yeah i think that maybe the technical community might be excited about some advancement and then it takes a while for the impact of that to be felt or recognized more broadly for example, yeah, uh, you know, what might right. seem like a, you know, a nice little paper in, say, curriculum learning, uh, yeah. and I'm thinking of a paper in specific here, might be like, oh, that's a nice little achievement in that one area, but it might actually have a huge effect uh, downstream, and that might actually take a long time for us to realize the impact of that. I was thinking of the paired paper, and then we've had uh, the authors on mm. the show. It was just one of many posters, but uh, the potential impacts of some are, are just so much more than others, and I think it's it might be hard to see it at the time. Yeah, I would actually, I'd love to like try and do look at some case studies like this or something because I mean, in a, in in part, I would say that like part of what I'm trying to do with my research is think about you know, how do we identify that sooner, right? Like, how do you how do you pick that curriculum learning paper out of the posters um, at a conference? Um, I, I guess, I guess part of your question is like, is it possible? But, you know, part of the purpose of this idea of having, um, governments or, um, researchers looking at social impacts, like monitoring, paying more attention to progress, thinking more systematically about and paying more attention to progress in machine learning, um, is so that we kind of have this ability to at least try and think through, um, you know, what might the societal impacts of some of these things be sooner? I think it's really hard, but I think it's 
possible to do do better than than we currently are but yeah it would be really interesting to look at some of the papers or you know um specific um sort of techniques that have ended up having quite a big impact um and then and looking kind of looking back and saying like could we have known this at the time what were the stages this went through like what happened actually a project I've been thinking about um is trying to sort of do more in-depth analysis also of which I think is kind of similar to this of I guess what call like this sort of research to deployment pipeline so take some capability um you know take look at the first transformer model all the way through to like um application in google search like what were all the steps in between in between like the very first transformer paper um and it being applied in google search um and can we learn anything from sort of following that path about the path that other papers or capabilities might might follow and and do you think about timescales on these milestones? Do you think it, that it's feasible to talk about when some of these things might happen? Or is time not so much a focus and it's more about the structure uh, of the graph? How do you think about time? Yeah, we. how do I think about time? Um, we, were, we were very much focused on the structure and kind of deliberately chose not to include time in this paper just because yeah, why? I guess partly just sort of like for the simplicity and, and really what we were trying to do was was think about understanding the causal the causal structure um, and sort of the order of milestones as opposed to any specific time. I'm quite skeptical of like being able to put timescales on these things. I, in general, sort of uh, more towards thinking about sort of the order of progression of capabilities and the order in which things come, um, as opposed to time. I think I might be, I might be irrationally skeptical of, of, of trying to put times on things, but I feel like sometimes trying to put specific times on things can kind of get a bit distracting and arbitrary. And it's not the thing that matters so much as like sort of the, the order of things. That totally makes sense. So do you have any opinions on what are the really important milestones or canaries, um, around circa 80 2021 like are we going through some of these milestones uh pretty quickly right now or are are you kind of focused on more long term no i mean i think i definitely i want to be able to think about you know like what are going to be important bits of pieces of progress um in the in the in the coming years um like this is you know this is exactly my interest is in sort of like grounding our thinking about longer term impact in, in what's going on today um I feel like I don't have good answers to this yet. I mean, one sort of... It's a really hard the, question. The DeepRL paper, yeah. I mean, and, and because the DeepRL paper is um, is very present in my mind, I do see, think something about um, seeing more real-world applications of, of RL systems, um, partic- perhaps particularly in safety-critical domains. I mean, that's, that's not a very clear one. Obviously, we are seeing some applications. Um, maybe there's some way of, like, operationalizing that more clearly. But I think there's some um milestone we might overcome in terms of being able to deploy reinforcement learning systems um more easily in the real world um that i think could be quite important for sort of all of the reasons i discussed before in terms of like this then is is opening up the possibility of um sort of more autonomous systems um that are kind of more agent-like and perhaps have more general capabilities um so that's, I guess that's one mile, that's one kind of milestone on like the, 
um, yeah, I should think about how to how to specify that a bit more precisely or like what's the what's the measure we would we would have of that. Right. Like if I'm saying governments need to be measuring progress, what's the what's the measure that they should be concerned about there? I guess another way you might think about um, a milestone is not just in sort of the capabilities, but like what are the signs that we should be looking out for more broadly in society that maybe something is something is really changing or something is really happening. And I think um, going back to the sort of um, your economic singularity term, there's something to watch out for in terms of um, sort of when we start to see kind of detectable changes in, in productivity or economic growth from AI. I think there's, there's something there about the fact that, you know, we're seeing a lot of investment and a lot of hype around AI at the moment, but right now, it's not, it, it, yeah, it's not kind of creating huge economic economic benefits. Um, and there's some, but there's a lot of anticipation that, that it might. And there's something about when we start to see that, um, that could be the sign of, of maybe a real kind of explosion and, and lots more investment um, and lots more changes. But yeah, there's a couple of very broad ones. Do you have any thoughts? Uh, I think it's a really hard question and it, it kind of goes back to that same issue of, can we tell when progress is happening while it's progress, while it's happening or only in yeah. retrospect? And it's just commenting on how calibrated we are. I mean, the experts disagree all the time, uh, on what's important on what's really happening. Um, yeah. what's, what's happening that meaning that's meaningful. Uh, I think most papers probably that are published probably won't impact anything. And some of them will have a ridiculously outsized impact and it's kind of hard to tell at the time. So, I, I mean, I think that's one of the reasons why I do this show and why I talk to people like you, because I, I'd like to develop my ability to see what's important because uh, there's so much noise. Um, mm. So I, yeah, I don't yeah. have, I really don't have a great, I don't have answers to any of the questions I'm asking you generally. And some of them are kind of unfairly, <laughs> di a lot of them are unfairly difficult. And, uh, and I'm, I'm kind of sorry for that, but I'm kind of like, this is the kind of stuff we have to deal with in this field. No, they're good questions. It's fun. As long as you're, you're okay with slightly meandering answers, <laughs> I'm quite happy to be asked them. Um, I do think this, this idea of like maybe looking back at, at, you know, capabilities and bits of progress in the past that maybe we didn't know were going to be impactful, but have ended up being so and doing some and trying to do some analysis, like, is there anything we can learn from them would be really interesting um, and potentially useful. And I'll just say, you know, part of the, the point of this, this Canaries paper was, it was, you know, very early thinking about and this, this needs a lot of development, but sort of thinking about a methodology for trying to distill more of the sort of knowledge that exists in expert communities, as you say, lots of people will have very different opinions about what's important and what's a big deal and, and what's been a big deal. But we, we believe, or at least hope that there's some signal in all of that noise. If you can kind of, you know, rather than just going and talking to a few people at conferences. Um, although, you know, I think, I think there's, there's value in just talking to lots of people too. Um, trying to bring together like lots of different perspectives and kind of distill that and, and map that and find commonalities. Um, we're like somewhat optimistic that that at least would help somewhat to like distill some signal, but it's very much a work in progress. So I really enjoyed reading this paper and it really changed my perspective on time and progress. Cool. And the kind of the structure of progress and the like thinking about the ability to predict, you know, what would that map look like and what would you need? What, how, how would you develop that capability to predict that stuff? There's so many issues that come out of this. I think it's, um, it, it was just 
a very memorable experience reading and I'll, I'll uh, I think about it fairly often. And but it also brings to mind, um, you know, another type of canary map. And uh, maybe you have this in mind already, but this it seems like the maps that you're uh, dealing with in this paper have to do with the structured progress through technological achievements. Um, and maybe there's an alternative map that has to do with the political and economic and democracy-related um, events and impacts uh, of AI, and maybe actions that could be taken as well to um, yeah. to deal with them. So I was thinking, like, the nodes on that might have to do with things like you know, impact of AI and democracy in terms of you know voter manipulation, syn- synthetic media influencing the political process, laws and regulations regarding AI being passed, um, AI being used for governance itself, maybe AI replacing yeah. different types of labor. Like, there's all these things that we can kind of in the kind of political. I'm using the, I'm starting to like this phrase from uh, from Thomas Gilbert, political economy type stuff. Yeah. Um, if we had to slice through all that and. And what would that map look like? And it, it, that would be that wouldn't just be. Um, I, I think the technical map is is in some way simpler because there's there's has to be some natural progression. Whereas the the political economy AI map uh, or canary uh, graph would uh, would ha- maybe be a bit prescriptive too. Like okay, if that happens, it would be a really good idea if we push for this type of policy. And when that thing over there happens, then we're really going to need some kind of. Um, you know, we're going to have to strengthen our democracy in this other way. Otherwise, that other thing down the line is going to cause a real problem for democracy itself. Or so I, I mean, I think this is the more I think about it, I think it's a much more um, ambitious. It's like almost it seems impossible to me to really map all that stuff out. But it also seems like um, maybe something that that really needs to be done. I wonder if there is, is that kind of the, uh, the angle you're taking with your work sort of implicitly? Yeah, actually, as, as you were saying that, I was thinking, in a way, um, what you're describing is quite close to this this bigger project I was I was describing, where we're sort of trying to ma- map out these different um, sort of pathways by which AI ends up having these more extreme impacts. Like a large part of what we're trying to do there is is kind of look at a lot of the the current and possible trends that are getting discussed in terms of like AI's impact on on politics and on the media and on science. Um, and on inequality and and we've really been trying to like just collect together like a lot of um a lot of the discussion on that and and then I mean I've literally been kind of drawing graphs of like okay well you know um this thing could feed into this thing and and this could end up getting you here um and and part of the the point of that is to um to try and identify and actually I realized when I was doing this process a few months ago I was like oh I'm doing the canaries thing I didn't even intend to but it was like kind of drawing out these maps one and so I do feel like and that kind of goes back to what I was saying before of like part of the point of this being not that it's going to perfectly predict anything but that it at least makes a bit more explicit like the various different possible things that could happen and the ways that they might intersect with each other um and you know if 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 ai leads to the automation of lots of jobs how might that affect politics you know might we see um sort of like more um dissatisfaction and uprising and protests and what does that mean for um the way that um people in powerful positions who perhaps have the ability to 
um, manipulate information and things act. Um, and obviously this is all like super, super speculative, but like at least by mapping out these arrows, you can then kind of start to ask really interesting and important questions about the relationships between these things and identify like, well, maybe this is the sort of thing that could actually have a really big, really big impact. Um, I guess like ultimately what I'd like to be able to do is figure out sort of how to connect this like political economy, societal impact map with the technical map a bit more um, easily. And I think this is one of the challenges is kind of when you do one, they're kind of two very different ways of looking at the same thing. I think with the, with the broader political social impact map, um, one thing I can kind of see us doing is, you know, drawing out this map of these things that can happen, could happen. And then you kind of can start to think about like, well, how my different advances, um, in capabilities feed into these things, right? Like what kinds of advances in AI do we need for it to start being applied to scientific research, um, in such a way that we're able to like automate, um, certain kinds of scientific discovery that might, you know, change the nature of scientific work or might make it more likely we um, discover dangerous technologies or something like that. And then if you think about, okay, what kinds of, what kinds of AI systems do we need to be able to do this? And then how far are we from this today? What kinds of progress would we need to see? That then really helps you to start to map out like, okay, I then am fairly optimistic if you were kind of bringing, bringing enough people, enough rigor to this, that maybe you are then able to start identifying um the kinds of progress that are likely to be important, or at least that that's a better way to try and identify that than just sort of people from their perhaps narrower perspective in their field saying, well, this seems important. And I think one thing I've been thinking about a lot is like what level of kind of understanding the technical details do um, people like me who think about kind of societal impacts need. And I think, you know, earlier I said, you know, I think they need to be engaging with more than, than it seems but I don't think I think you don't need to be you don't need to be and perhaps it's better not to be like a really narrow specialist in a specific area of ML because then you kind of you maybe miss the miss the big picture and so part of what I'm trying to sort of figure out in my own like learning and development and understanding is like you know how to have that kind of bird's eye view of well this is what this is broadly the areas that that we're kind of seeing progress in this is what air systems can do this is their limitations these are the different avenues we might see things going um so that it's then possible to sort of draw those connections between the big societal trends and the and the kinds of progress in research so um yeah it's a big project <laughs> it's a big undertaking well i'm glad you're doing it and uh maybe you know the existence of yourself and and people doing the work like you're doing uh, is is an important uh canary as well on these graphs <laughs> i hope so I maybe a positive one or something i don't know yeah so i i guess just related to this discussion i was thinking about the relationship between uh these these canaries and and maybe threat models like when when we go to uh look at the security of a computer system uh we'll make a threat model talking about what the different threats are and how we can be they can be mitigated um, it seems like some of your canary graphs could be a mm. great first step in terms of a threat model for, uh, you know, the political economy and democracy itself. 
there's actually so many ways that our political economy and democracy itself can be attacked by AI. And uh, if we think of, if we look to game yeah. theory, um, we should see that uh, the the stakes are really high, and there's many actors that would be motivated to attack different aspects of politics, the economy, and, and democracy. And with AI, these the, the capabilities change a lot and um, power can be amplified a lot and so how could we possibly mitigate it, uh, those I mean it's, it's yet another um, angle but it seems like um, one that I hope uh, people get around to considering and taking seriously uh, because I think the institutions and everything that we uh, the way that we run our world in many ways hasn't changed that much over hundreds of years and uh, yeah. and we have a lot of catching up to do really fast to keep our systems working working well uh, with capabilities like this floating around yeah yeah I think and again I mean I think one good one one way of nice way that you give me of kind of describing part of what I'm doing is is trying to map out sort of different threat models um, for, for AI on a pretty on a pretty big scale um, but but get those clearer um, yeah and I I agree with you I kind of I should say like I, I think I'm not fundamentally pessimistic about AI like I think you know this is this is a technology that could bring huge huge benefits certainly like in terms of sort of like you know, improving the quality of healthcare and, and medical treatment, and and potentially, I think you alluded to this before. But you know, these, I you know, I have a background. Um, my PhD was actually in um, cognitive science, and and I was sort of looking at the the strengths and limitations of human rationality. And I think a thing I've been quite interested in is, um, you know, how to think about AI capabilities as complementing human capabilities, and and can we um, sort of think about building systems in ways that um, systems that can do things that humans can't do, perhaps, rather than mimicking exactly what, what humans can do. So, like, in theory, I'm very, I have a lot of optimism about about AI as kind of being able to, to complement human, like, strengths in solving big, important problems in the world, um, you know, just helping us to make sense of enormous amounts of data that, that our brains can't process and, and things like that. But in practice, right now, I'm quite pessimistic because I feel like, um, as you say, like we sort of, we've, we've, our, our institutions haven't really evolved, um, fast enough to deal with these powerful technologies. We're developing very powerful technologies in a world where there's already, you know, large amounts of inequality. Um, our governments are not very well equipped, um, to deal with it. Um, and so I really do worry that by default, um, these powerful technologies in the hands of, of, of powerful people or in the hands of people who just aren't able to think super thoroughly about the wider consequences, um, do sort of inevitably end up doing harm, whether that's by, you know, increasing concentration of power to, to an extreme point, whether it's because we're not careful enough and we use this technology to develop something, you know, as a more dangerous than the nuclear weapons, um, whether it's because we just let these systems without thinking very hard about it, take over more and more of the economy. And then it kind of turns out they're not really doing what we wanted. Um, but we can't do anything about it anymore. I think, yeah, if, if it was up to me, I would be like, let's maybe pause AI development for a bit. And, um, <laughs> and and fix some other problems and then let's do it and let's do all that you know people can keep doing research <laughs> but um yeah it's not ai itself that i think is like fundamentally problematic i think it's like maybe sort of developing powerful technologies quickly without without dealing with a bunch of other like institutional and political problems first 
I totally agree with you. So AI research uh, right now seems uh, remarkably open. It's done all in the open. Mm. What uh, do you think this openness will will continue? And is that important uh, in terms of uh, how things will progress? Yeah, I think this is this is quite a complex issue. There's obviously been sort of there's this real strong um, sort of norm towards openness in the in the AI community. I don't know. I guess that's like maybe partly come from from the open source community or, or something. I think it's interesting to look historically at, at where that's come from. Um, there's been a fair amount of debate over the last year or so sort of more about this. At least there's debate in the kind of circles that I, um, the intellectual circles that, that I move in, um, which is like a little bit more on the sort of policy and governance side of, of AI. But I think it's been happening in the ML world too. Um, OpenAI with the with their release of GPT-2 obviously prompted this um this quite big conversation when they sort of said we're not going to release we're not going to release the the model um because we're we're somewhat concerned about misuse um i think no matter what you think about that decision it was interesting and in that it started people talking about this and that was i think there was they were surprised at how much i don't know exactly but my impression was they were maybe surprised at how much backlash they got from the the ML community on that, which I think it just shows how how strong the openness norms are. I do think they were raising an important and difficult issue, which is, you know, when there is there are there are costs to openness. Um, you know, when when capabilities have the potential to be misused, um, or you know, even if not sort of maliciously misused, if if they if they might be used thoughtlessly in, in ways that could could cause harm. Um, there is some responsibility, I think, on on the research community to think about and, you know, draw an analogies with sort of um, areas of, of life sciences research, like, like gain-of-function research, right? Like, there's a point at which you say, no, we don't think it's appropriate to publish openly the details of um, how to manufacture a um a lethal pandemic although i think it still happens i think i think people still publish like a blueprint of a smallpox um virus i think that's happened um so i think you know most most people would agree that that's not a thing we want to do while still thinking that that norms of openness are, are really important um in the community it seems to me over the last couple of years there's been a bit of a move towards acknowledging that more at least in certain circles um, and at least certain groups of people thinking a lot more about sort of, you know, it's not an open versus closed decision, right? It's a question of in what circumstances might sharing research widely in what ways like be a bit risky and and where should we think about um, limiting that? And actually, I, I, I wrote this paper um, a couple of years with Avivo Vajir about um, we looked, we sort of used synthetic media as a case study and um and talked about um, different decisions that you might consider kind of attempting to break down this open-closed distinction um, when thinking about how widely research should be shared. So it's kind of, it, it's about like, um, you know, there's a difference between <laughs> publishing a paper and not, you know, not really doing any promotion and getting media attention for it, right? And that's that's not a decision we think about. Um, there's a difference between never publishing the code for your model and publishing it a bit later after the fact so that there's a bit more time for and this is I think what OpenAI intended to do so there's a bit more time for to do research on um, 
sort of any form of defenses. So in, in their case, they were interested in having a bit more time to do research on um, on approaches to better detecting and, dis- and, and distinguishing um, synthetic media from from real content or um, more time to do research on reducing bias in um, in language models. Um, so I think we are likely to see a move towards sort of a bit more nuanced decision making here, a bit more thinking through the costs and benefits um, of sharing certain kinds of AI research widely and some contexts in which you might want to do that. But I don't expect anything to change very soon. Like, I think that norm is still very strong. I suppose there's also the fact that, you know, more and more research is is being done in industry now. A lot of researchers are moving to industry. I don't have a super good sense of how that's going to change things. But obviously, um, you are going to end up with a lot more stuff that's that's proprietary, too. So um, I think it's changing a little bit for some good and some bad reasons. I, But I think the openness norms are like pretty strong. And so I don't see it changing hugely anytime soon. And I think broadly, that's probably pretty good. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely complex. I saw one talk that you gave, uh, I watched the video for, you mentioned uh, human difficulty with rational decisions and collective action. Do you think that AI uh, has any chance of helping us in that department? Yeah, I think, I mean, I mentioned this this briefly earlier when I was sort of talking about being optimistic about AI, at least in, in theory. And this is where I first, my sort of optimistic take on AI first came from is, I, you know, I was studying the limits of, of human decision making and human rationality and was was quite interested in thinking about sort of AI as decision support um, tools and this idea of trying to understand sort of the the the, the limits and the relative strengths and limits of, of human and AI decision making. And I think this one talk I gave, maybe it was the one that, that you watched, I was sort of saying, you know, these, the, the strengths are very complementary, you know, there's this um, sort of in some ways surprising phenomenon that we found that AI it's easier to get AI to do things that we find really hard, like um, chess than it is to get them to do the things we find really easy, like recognizing an object as a chair. And, um, and in some ways I feel like that's sort of not appreciated enough for what it is, which is that like we have these systems that can do very different things for us. You know, f- for example, again, as I mentioned before, it's like, well, the, the strengths of, of, of machine learning are that, you know, they can, they can learn, patterns in like enormous data sets that we couldn't even possibly um begin to process or or make sense of so when it comes to things like um you know discovering drugs or medical interventions um there's like a huge advantage there in terms of um in terms of sort of helping us to identify robust patterns you know one of the biases that comes up in in human decision making is this kind of tendency to see patterns where there are none um, and I think that's definitely a thing that that machine learning can help us with. Um, the collective action one is a bit more. So that's sort of like improving human rationality to, to some degree. I definitely think there's promise there. Actually, another thing I'll say on that is a, a thing I've been kind of interested in is there's um, there's an ML startup in San Francisco called Ort that are trying to basically develop ML-based tools to help people reflect better. So I think the idea is really to sort of um, use ML to, um, I I think they're starting with sort of chatbot-type systems to sort of like ask good questions um, to help with this kind of like dialogic reasoning. Um, 
and but also to kind of help try and bring together to sort of like knowledge um, and reasoning from different sources to help people just like think through in a more systematic and and rigorous way, you know, what they want, what solutions to their problems might look like. Um, and that I think is, is quite exciting and, and, and cool as a, um, yeah, as a, as a thing to be working on. Um, yeah, the, the collective action one I feel like is a little bit more complex and I'm actually not sure. I'm not like, what did I say in that talk that, that AI could do? Um, I think, you know, collective action is obviously a huge, um, a huge challenge and a huge thing underpinning many problems in, in society. Um, you know, collective action on climate change, um, things like that. Um, one thing I'll say is that there is a, there are a group of people, um, led by Alan Defoe, who was until recently, um, head of the, um, governance of AI group at the University of Oxford. Um, he has been thinking a lot. He's a political scientist and he's been working with, um, quite a few people at DeepMind and he's, he's now gone to DeepMind, um, thinking about a, this sort of broad field of, of cooperative AI. So this is both problems of how do we build AI systems that can cooperate effectively with each other? Um, but also like, can we build, um, AI systems that, that help us to cooperate? Um, more effectively by perhaps, for example, making it, um, easier to make credible commitments and, and, and things like that. And I think that's really interesting, um, and exciting. Um, I think, yeah, problems of, of cooperation do underpin like a lot of, um, and, and collective action problems do underpin a lot of, of difficult things in the world. So I think there's, um, there's potentially some exciting stuff there, but it's not something I've thought, um, a load about, um, myself. Awesome. Okay. And what do you think uh, the path going forward looks like for yourself? Yeah, good question. So, you know, just figure out all of the different things you should be concerned about with AI and then like which capabilities are going to affect them. And then, um, no, so I mean, I'm, I'm trying to do this pretty broad, big, big picture stuff. I don't think I'm going to figure out any, any answers, but I really feel like thinking this stuff through in a lot of detail. Um, and and trying to sort of bring together lots of expertise and perspectives in that um, is is at least promising for like my own thinking and clarity and in, in what most matters in this space. Um, so I'm definitely just going to spend more time doing that. I'm I'm the sort of person who's I you know I I don't know for sure if I'm going to stay in sort of a traditional academic path or whether I I'm I, you know I think we're at this particular opportune moment in terms of. Uh, Governments particularly are really starting to think about governing our AI and, and regulation and, and what they do. And there's some quite exciting stuff going on in the UK and the EU and, um, and in the US too, I'm sure, but I'm just less up to speed with that. And so I could definitely see myself going in a bit more of a direction of kind of trying to get into the, to the weeds of, of, of influencing that and, and shaping that given this kind of, uh, this, this sort of bigger picture understanding I'm developing of, of what's going to matter most longer term. And I think even if I stay on the sort of academic path or if I, if I were to go more into policy, I sort of, I still see myself very much as like bringing this kind of connecting big picture thinking to the more kind of concrete day, day to day decisions and, and trying to bring that that bigger picture perspective i'm also kind of moving more into away from kind of just doing my own research towards towards managing this team of researchers and and that's the thing i really love doing because i think if you want as we've talked about this kind of work really needs interdisciplinarity but interdisciplinarity is challenging and 
And I think, you know, one of the things that requires is um, maybe sort of like a bit more explicit um, management and having a team that um, has kind of a bit more of a shared strategy and, and goals and can kind of speak the same language. So I'm quite excited about sort of developing this team that we have who who come from a range of backgrounds. And I just I don't know, I'm not a researcher who likes sitting on my own in a room although that is what most of the last year has been um I really like working with people so like I'm quite excited about about kind of developing in that direction and just trying to just trying to keep understanding and and exploring and thinking yeah thinking in a lot of depth about these these different scenarios and and what we should what we should do well I can't wait to uh read all about what you you come up with with yourself and your team (laughs) yeah we'll see so besides your own work, um, is there other uh, research lately that you're you're really excited about? Yeah, I'd say like a few a few general themes. Um, one is like I mean something that I'm interested in but haven't really gotten to spend much time on. But I've been I, there's been quite a lot of work coming out of various different academic centers and civil society sort of on this idea of like um, participatory futures and like how do we engage a wider range of perspectives and sort of thinking about what we do and don't want from this technology and what we might be concerned about. I've sort of been, yeah, getting increasingly interested in over, over time in this sort of perspective of like, how do we uh, develop this technology in a way that's more kind of democratic and inclusive of a wide range of, of perspectives and concerns and what are the benefits of that and why should we want that? So I have a really great colleague, um, Alexa Haggerty, who's got a, a background in anthropology, and she's really interested in this question of sort of like, you know, integrating the perspectives of of sort of people in communities affected by technology into thinking about what responsible development looks like. Um, and so I'm hoping to she's been doing some really great work on that. And there's been some really interesting work coming out of places like um Nesta and some some other places sort of looking at this 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 wider participation question and and we're hoping to do some sort of more substantive thinking about you know why and when this is useful because I think there's there's a bit of a tendency of kind of two extremes where you have one group of people who say like inclusivity and like participation is just like obviously important and like maybe you know there's there's an element of that like obviously we want to be inclusive but but that's sort of you know it doesn't really get into the details of like why this is beneficial and then there are maybe other people who kind of be dismissive and say like oh we you know the public don't really know we can't really ask for their expertise and I think there's a more nuanced understanding in between this which is like no we don't want to go and ask like I'm not going to go and ask sort of the wider public to tell me what specific like to try and help me like develop a canary map of like very specific technical capabilities right like there are places for like specific expertise but I also do think that like you know one of the problems with AI development today is that we don't have um we kind of you know it is being driven by a relatively narrow set of interests and we sort of there is all this thinking like that I'm doing about about harms but not that much sense of like kind of collective visions of um of kind of possible and exciting futures and so although this isn't like a thing that I'm emphasizing a lot in my own work at the time I'm really I'm quite excited about work that's happening that's kind of trying to do that kind of thing like bring together more diverse perspectives and like a wider range of expertise to really think in more detail about like what are the ways this could be really good um 
Um, so yeah, I'm excited to see more people doing that kind of stuff and to try and contribute a bit, I guess in part because um, it also helps to kind of complement and offset um, some of the more negative stuff I'm doing. Um, yeah, so that's one thing I'm really excited about. Cool. Okay, this episode has been a long time in the coming. Um, we've had a, a false start before, which was which was totally my fault <laughs> yeah. with technical tr- trouble, and uh, and then we had uh, a lot of s- scheduling rescheduling. I just I just want to thank you for your patience through all this, and I'm so glad that we made it happen. Yeah, me too, Doctor Jess Whittlestone. I really appreciate you sharing your time and your insight with Talk RL today. Thanks so much for joining us here. Thanks so much for having me. Pretty enjoyed the conversation. Notes and links for this episode are at talkrl.com. If you like this show, I need your support. You can help in a few ways. One, subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Subscriptions make a big difference. Two, follow us on Twitter at talkrlpodcast. We love retweets. Three, give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. If you don't think we deserve five stars, let us know on Twitter what we could do better. 